Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. For this special episode, I am joined by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we divide the podcast into two segments. First, we take a look at Black Friday, August 4th, 2023, when the Pac-12, for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist. There were plenty of actors who played a role in the demise of the conference, but it wasn't until the media deal offered to the schools was found wanting that the 108-year-old conference fell apart. Who bears the brunt of the blame for the mass exodus, and who are the winners, and who are the losers, when the dust settled? We then move back to talking about actual football. CU's fall camp is underway, and we take a unit-by-unit look at the Buff defense, rating each unit as to whether it rates as being in the top half of the Pac-12 or in the bottom half. So, is there enough heft in the CU's interior defensive line to keep opposing offenses from running straight at the buff defense? Is there enough speed and talent at the edge to wreak some havoc on opposing quarterbacks? Are CU's star cornerbacks ready for prime time, or are they still a few games or even a full season away from being dominant? Is this the best back end? to CU's defense since 2016? Let's find out. Okay, and we're back with Brad Geiger hanging out in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. How's Brad doing? Doing great. Been a nice week here in Highlands Ranch and, uh, you know, not much going on in college football, but I suspect we'll find something to talk about. <laughs> yes, the, the doldrums of early August. <laughs> and looking down upon the peons at Larimer Square is Neil Langland. Neil, how's it going for you? Oh, I'm doing well. Good to see you guys. Um, dog days of summer, just kind of waiting for something to come out of camp and 
looking forward to uh, the second. Okay. Well, we uh, we're going to talk about we did our offensive line by line, unit by unit preview. We're all set to do one for the defensive units, and then fate intervened, and we had to do a, a special episode to talk about the University of Colorado decamping for the Big 12. Uh, when last we talked, Colorado was heading off. We discussed, you know, the goods and the bads and the positives and the negatives and the possibility of future defections. It looked like Arizona might very well be the 14th team to join the reconfigured Big 12. And then, well, then Friday, August 4th came along and the Pac-12 which was down to the Pac-9, became the Pac-4. Just briefly, for those that have been living under a rock, Friday morning dawned August 4th with some reports that uh, there might be salvation for the Pac-9, that the presidents were going to meet, discuss grant of rights, discuss the Apple contract options. And now, as we've since learned, Oregon and Washington did not participate, giving notice shortly before that they were in talks with the Big Ten, and it became public before noon. And then thereafter, the rest of the four corners, Arizona, which was already well on its way out the door to the Big 12, and then the reluctant parties of Arizona State and Utah were drug kicking and screaming into the Big 12 and leaving the orphan four as what is now left of the the Pac-12. So, Brad, what were, uh, were you doing, you know, work? I mean, were you actually uh, functioning as a human being outside of college football on August 4th? Or are you, like me, glued to the Twitter universe waiting for, waiting breathlessly for the next piece of news? Well, uh, one of my bosses occasionally listens to this podcast. So, of course, I was deeply uh, involved in my work on Friday, but I did manage to pile myself away to watch the most fascinating explosion, implosion of a, honestly, a long and storied group and just disappear over the course of about four hours. And it was um, fascinating. It was completely emblematic of modern football and, of course, in some ways, a little bit sad. Yeah, well... Neil, what was uh, what was your reaction as uh, the day unfolded and the uh, Pac-9 became the Pac-4? Uh, you're right. This is unprecedented. Something this quick, this drastic, that sees a 100-year-old conference just melt off the map. Pretty amazing. I think it goes to just how desperate schools are to try to maintain themselves at the Power Five or the Power Table and the links they will go to to avoid dropping down to a group of five, six, or seven, whatever it's going to be. And it's a testimonial to just how inept the Pac-12 management has been over the last 12 years, and especially the last three or four. You know, not to condemn Mr. Klyovkov, but I just don't think he knew what he was doing. And so all of that weight came crashing down in the space of about 24 hours. Yeah. Well, Brad, do we uh, lay this at the feet of Klyavkov? Do we lay it at the feet of 
the former Pac-12 commissioner, or is it the presidents that allowed Larry Scott and George Klyavkov to run the Pac-12 into well, the yeah. ground? Who's? How do you distribute the blame for the demise of the Pac-12? Well, in the end, the buck stops with the presidents. It has to. Larry Scott was completely overmatched by the job and that he came up with the, you know, the PAC 12 network was going to be the savior. You know, I guess you take your, you, you take your shot, but the presidents, I mean, let's remember the presidents were not unaware that we'd already had some conference realignment and this idea that we were going to do it better, that we were going to do it first um, should have rang a few bells should have concerned a few people. So while Larry Scott came up with the idea, in the end, the people who said yes are at fault. I'm more sympathetic to Kliakoff. He came in and was charged with writing a, uh, trying to bail out a sinking ship. But again, he tried to do something unprecedented. And we don't know what other negotiations went on. We don't know if there was any linear broadcasting deal turned down but he i don't think was playing he wasn't playing a strong hand um and got took i mean he was the last man at the table and there were other decisions that could have been made an alignment with the big 12 more work with the acc lots of other things that could have been done that weren't done there's a lot of second guessing but again it's the president's and um you know, we can be happy that CU was the first man off that ship and I think landed in the best possible place. But it doesn't mean we didn't participate in the in the sinking of that particular conference. Okay. Well, Neil, if I was give you several, I mean, you could go back to, you know, even back to 2011 or so when you're talking about the chance of getting more Big 12 teams to join the Pac-12 at the time, expanding the Pac-10 to the Pac-16 or something like that. Other options when the Big 12 in 2021 was struggling with Texas and Oklahoma announcing that they were leaving. But where, you know, where do you really see the tipping point? If I give you USC, UCLA leaving June 30th of 2022, announcing that they were leaving, was it Colorado being the tipping point or Really, it was Oregon. I mean, it's Oregon and Washington left for the Big Ten, but it was really Oregon's decision to make. Washington was going to do whatever Oregon decided to do. I saw listen to one podcast where they talked about, you know, the Titanic. This, you know, there's a compartments and how many compartments? It's only when you get that that one compartment that last, you know, that becomes a tipping point. Up to that point, you know, the the ship might have been able to sail on. But that one flooded compartment becomes the last one, the last straw. And they were hinting that Colorado deciding to leave was actually the the breaking of the compartment that really signaled that that was the point of no return. So where in the timeline do you uh, do you put this point of no return for the Pac-12? Was it when writing on the wall when USC and UCLA said they were going to leave? Was it? The lack of a contract, was it CU or was it when Oregon said we're out of here and then the other four schools after that had no choice but to leave the conference? Several issues there, Stu. And I'd like to take your Titanic analogy and something Brad just said about Colorado's role 
in the demise of the conference and try to knit those together with missed opportunities all during the beginning, middle and end of the Pac-12 conference. Going back to the Pac-16, the initial formation of it, I'd always thought that getting away from Texas was a wise thing. They were going to be destructive in the Pac-12 Pac just as they were in the Big 12. And refusing to do that was the right thing to do. However, there were other points along the way where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State petitioned the Pac-12 for membership. And for some reason, I think it might have something to do with academic snobbery, said no. Those schools would have helped buoy the, the, uh, the Pac-12 or the Pac-14. Also, along the way, the president's Brad has a point, refused an offer for the Pac-12 network to be carried finally on DirecTV. But how do you do that? How do you not take that offer? Even if it means less revenue down the road, it's exposure, which was probably the biggest weakness in the Pac-12's armor was not having nationwide exposure through a partner. They could have partnered with ESPN and have them run, have ESPN run the network. But no, uh, we were off on the wrong foot altogether from the get-go with Pac-12 networks. Along the way, I think that there was a growing frustration by the big revenue schools, especially USC, that sensed that they were pulling a lot of dead weight, the University of Colorado being part of that dead weight. If CU and other schools had performed better over that period, perhaps there would have been less animosity between the upper echelon schools and the lower echelon ones. I think that's a force we haven't really addressed yet, but I think USC was, I think, very upset, for lack of a better word, at the division of revenue. They were the Texas of the Pac-12 conference. And one could just feel that at some point they were gonna be tired of the equal revenue sharing and be looking for something else, whether it be independence or some other conference. And finally, as Brad mentioned, by the time it's 2018 or 19, I think the Titanic analogy kicks in here, which is the design of the Titanic from the very beginning was flawed. The metal was flawed. The watertight compartments design was flawed, such that if it took a hit in a particular spot, it would go over. So I think that what happened with uh, the Pac-12 was the, the momentum for the dissolution really began back around 18 or 19. And it was just steadily gathering steam and it just needed one thing. And I think it was Fox that wanted to control the West Coast college TV market. And they first preyed upon the conference by taking two of the best names. And then later, while trying to, to pretend that they did not have a role in the final demise of the Pac-12, they also wanted, and Fox ponied them up, up the money for Washington and Oregon to join. So there are many causes there, but I think the Pac-12 has only itself to blame. Yeah. Well, Brad, I, I'd only add one other was, the, you know, with 
Brett Yormark and the Big 12 running doing an end run around the Pac-12 in terms of timing of the contract that uh, the Big 12's contracts were not supposed to come up until a year after the Pac-12 contracts, but they went and got the money while the money was still on the table, leaving not much for the Pac-12 to pick over. Brad, let's talk about Washington and Oregon. They obviously got what they wanted. They got to the conference that we thought they would be in no later than into the decade, the second round of realignment. But the information is their contract is only about half of what the other schools in the Big Ten are making, which over the life of the contract means they'll be making like something like $100, $120 million less than Northwestern and Rutgers and Maryland are going to be making over that same time frame. And I saw one report uh, for Washington, they figured out it would cost about $10 million a year in extra travel expenses. So Oregon and Washington got what they wanted. They got into the Big Ten, but uh, was it a, a day of celebration for the the two big schools in the Pacific Northwest? I think there is a chance that they will regret some of that decision. I think the travel burdens are onerous. I think there are, you know, it helps that they're in there with US, USC and UCLA, although USC has to be less than thrilled. Point was that they weren't supposed to be playing Oregon. Um, on a regular yeah. basis, and now they get them every decent year. chance they're going to get them every year. Yeah. Um, so they took what they can get, which in the first year is less than what CU will get from the Big 12, which feels a little bit good on a pure schadenfreude level. Um, <laughs> in the end, I think if we understand that this is probably not the last bunch of realignment, this is a holding pattern. They got in with the big boys. They're not going to get left behind. They're not going to be sitting out on the coast. So they took what they could get. Oregon's not going to lack for money as long as Phil Knight is willing to open up his wallet. But there are just, this was not their best option. Oregon wanted desperately for the Pac-12 to survive because they think that's their best chance to get into the college football playoff, which there is zero chance that 12 team college football playoffs is going to look the way we thought it was going to look when it starts. I, I don't think a pack four reassociated with the mountain West is going to get themselves an automatic bid. If those teams exist, I think Oregon and Washington both lost in-state rivals. And I think that matters given the history of those. So this was something of a desperation move. They were forced into it when Kliakov walked in and said, Oh, Here's the pittance we're going to get from Apple. So we knew they had to do it. I understood why they did it, but there have to be some misgivings up there, doesn't there? I I would think so. That yeah, they're they get the LA recruiting again, but yeah, they also get to play USC every year. And yeah, the path to the playoff seems to be a whole lot different than if they were doing in the pack nine, ten, or twelve for the next five years for less money. But if they want to get to the playoff, winning the Pac-10 or 12 would have been a lot easier than even being the third-place team in the Big Ten. But they took the money. Neil, let me just ask you briefly about the four-corner schools. Arizona seemed to be pretty much following Colorado out the door. But 
Arizona State, I mean, Arizona State President Michael Crow still complaining about having to move. He didn't want to go. And uh, Utah, who has been looking down at BYU for some time now since they joined a Power Five conference, now is the junior state of Utah school in the Big 12. And in all likelihood, we'll have to play the Holy War every year. So out of those schools, I mean, obviously, I think Arizona clearly is the happiest of the three, but uh, not a really great day for Utah and Arizona State, is it? Definitely not. I think Arizona was going to be out the door in any event. The other schools were holding on, hoping that Oregon and Washington were going to stick in. And when Oregon left, that was it. That started the cascade and the gold rush or the land rush, however you want to metaphor that. But Utah now has a much more difficult road to the playoffs uh, than they had with uh, the Pac-12 because they'd had two consecutive ones and had a good chance to winning again this year. So they've got to be pretty upset. Um, Arizona State, as I understand it, their president, Michael Crow, was the Larry Scott advocate and really yes. wanted to put the conference together. And you know, I just have to wonder about the guy's judgment, why he wasn't more anxious to get to the Big 12. Well, just uh, as we speak, we're still in flux with the orphan four, as I call them. Their possibility of a lifeline to the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10 even for... Cal and Stanford because of their academic standing. Nobody seems to be too excited about Oregon State and Washington State, perhaps a lifeline to the Big 12, but they were going to offer them. They would have, you thought, would have, they would have offered them before. Either of you, before we close up shop on the realignment for right now and start talking about our defense at the University of Colorado, any thoughts about what's going to happen to the, the Orphan Four and how much sympathy do we have for the Beavers and the, the Cougars at this point? Boy, um, I think there's a decent, more than decent chance Stanford and with them Cal, and it should be phrased exactly that way, find some Power Five conference to land in, probably the ACC. Boy, you want to talk about travel fun? Did you don't have you? flying cross country all the time. I, I don't know what the Stanford water polo team is going to think about all of that. Um, <laughs> not sure how good the Rutgers water polo team is. Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> but you know, I don't know what's going to happen in, in Corvallis and Pullman. Uh, it's, it, they, they feel like the orphans and the only option is, is the mountain West, which is, a scalping in terms of TV money. Right. Um, geographically, they fit in there. Yeah, probably they're going to be good enough to win that conference. I mean, both of those programs have gotten better. They didn't deserve this. This isn't about moral or football competence. This is about geography and TV contracts. And yeah, you can make an argument that those two TV markets are more equivalent to what the Mountain West was. They've been riding on the bigger markets' tails for a lot of years and they just got dumped when everybody fled, you know, it, 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 Oregon and Washington, they're in the state schools, you know, not only left the house, they tossed in a gasoline bomb behind them and said, Hey, enjoy guys. So I don't, 
I I have no idea what they're going to do. I don't see any option, but somehow join a rejiggered Mountain West. But Cal's not going to join the Mountain West. That's just not how they operate. Um, they certainly think they're too good for that bunch. Stanford is Stanford, and they believe that too. So I think Stanford and Cal will go to the ACC. Stanford might try the Notre Dame shtick, but I don't know who's going to sponsor them. Yeah. They could put together an independent schedule, but who's going to televise it? Yeah. You know, that was the, the problem that they'd run into. Well, that the BYU thought that was a brilliant idea, too. Now, where are they? Yeah. Well, they, they, they found a home, you know, <laughs> but uh, for a while there, they were wandering around in ESPN Plus land, scheduling UMass and Coastal Carolina and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so, Neil, yeah, I mean, if you look at, Washington State, 35,000-seat stadium. Boise State's just down the road. Idaho's right across the road. You know, and then, of course, you got the Bay Area. you got San Jose State. you got Fresno State. There's lots of natural rivalries there in the Mountain West. But if you're going from 31.6 million that the Big 12 schools are going to be getting, including Colorado, to 6 or 7 million that you're going to get as a Mountain West school, how are you going to service all that debt? I have no idea how they're going to fix that. And it wasn't their fault. And this situation is not their fault. I, I think it's one of the, the tragedies of the way college football is now owned by two networks that call the shots. And if this is some sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest, they were the first ones to be eaten. And they're going to be more down the road come 230 or 2030, excuse me. Um, and CU is going to have to work hard not to be on the menu. As far as Stanford goes, they've got so much money. They'll find a way to do it. I don't know how. Cal doesn't. Cal needs the big revenue stream. And their best shot may be to go hat in hand to either the ACC or the Big Ten or even the Big, the big 12 and say, look, we'll be a junior member for a while. Just rescue us from the Mountain West, please. Yeah. Yeah, to be determined, but yeah, it does look kind of bleak, at least for now. And I guess, yeah, to put a bow on it, like you were saying, at least Colorado may not survive the next round of relegation, but at least CU being a member of the Big 12 is in a position to give itself a chance to uh, to stay with the big boys. So, well, And thanks to, Rick, thanks to Rick George for doing that. It was a masterful stroke. Yeah. We lucked out. I mean, if this had happened a year ago, who knows? Col- you know, Colorado might be playing CSU, Wyoming, and Air Force every year. So, I, yeah. Has any AD had a better six months? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you, you hire Prime, and that is that is what it is. And that hiring in large part lets you, or at least to some part, lets you get out of a dying conference and – Recognizing the sick guy before everybody else does sometimes is the important thing to do. Yeah. Well, got while the getting, got while the getting was good. So we'll use that as a transition to actually talk about the University of Colorado again and talk about football. Now, the opening of fall camp would have been front and center on everybody's lips. We would have been talking about Coach Prime's press conference and clips from fall camp and how exciting it was to be actually out on the field and the countdown to the start of the season kind of got preempted a little bit by the goings on the last couple of weeks, but we're going to move on and talk about 
the Colorado defense. And for those that listen to us talk about the offensive unit, uh, the standard here is whether or not each unit is one of the top six units in the Pac-12, with the idea being if they're in the top six, that's better than 500, a bowl team type of a unit. And if it's in the bottom six, then so you might struggle to make a bowl game this year. So I'm afraid to start with you, Neil, but I will when we talk about the defensive line. Perhaps the scariest unit on the team, the most difficult part of the team to uh, to judge with all the newcomers. Everybody that was there last year is gone. So what do you make of the Colorado defensive line this year, specifically the defense? We'll start with the inside out, start with the defensive tackles. Is there, there hope there? Well, there are six of them on the roster. They're not huge in terms of run stoppers. The biggest guy we have, I think, is 305, 300. That's not large as power defensive lines go. Um, I don't know how these guys compensate for lack of size, perhaps quickness, but that seems still to be a question mark, probably the biggest question mark on the team. As far as defensive ends go, we've got, Oh, how many? Uh, five defensive ends or stand-up guys or edge guys. They all seem to be pretty speedy, pretty athletic, pretty strong, uh, look like power five players. We just don't have enough data yet to see how those guys play together and how they're going to do. But this is really a key for these guys to come along. And I'm just hoping that the news out of camp where they've been talking about the offense so much and not so much about the defense. Um, I'm hoping that some of the good comments start to flow about the defense, especially the front seven, because if we don't have a front seven, that's going to stop the run, then we're going to be in a lot of shootout games, which could be fun to watch perhaps, but it's going to be difficult to outscore some of the PAC 12 teams without some run stopping ability. Yeah. Well, Brad, in the interior there, I mean, Shane Cokes seems to be one of the names that coaches have hoped for. Chance Maines, I guess we do have one player back. Chance Maine left and then came back. Leonard Payne, Bishop Thomas, you know, came from Florida State, but he's a redshirt freshman. Cokes was second team all conference. Yeah, but it was <laughs> that conference. Lee yeah. And Dartmouth. I mean, we were witness to last year. I mean, at halftime, we were at first game of the season. It was seven to six against TCU, and their touchdown was on a punt return. And then the second half, they just ran up the middle and put out the you know the template for what to do against the University of Colorado. And you know, by the second quarter of the Air Force game, we pretty much knew what the rest of the season was going to look like. So we have a bad memory of teams just running right up the middle against our defense and yes it's a whole new defense and different players than we had last year but is that the fear for the 2023 season is that teams are just going to run up the middle forget about the defensive backs forget about the linebackers just run up the middle until they stop them i think we will be better up front um you know i know that shane cokes excelled at a lower level but everything out of the camp says you know, all four days so far, 
says that he is an honest to God player. I think Leonard Payne has a chance to be an all an honest player. I think Bishop Thomas could break the starting lineup. And, you know, part of the problem last year is that we didn't have a lot of guys to put in when the first guys weren't working. So I think there is a good chance, particularly at the DT and in the center that we will be better. Are those three positions going to be better than the average pack 12 interior line? Probably not. So I would say there are weakness by that definition, but I think there are, I think our linebackers, as we'll talk about in a minute, have a chance to help. That's part of their job. Um, I think we're going to be better up the middle than we were last year. It's almost impossible to imagine us being worse, of course. But again, I think that there are enough players there, particularly in the middle, that they're going to find three or four guys or five who can get in there and keep it from being a route. Okay. Well, Neil, I mean, all of nine sacks last year, again, it's apples and oranges comparing the lineups, but you've got some, at least some rushing edge players now. you got, you know, like Derek McClendon, Savelle Smalls, hopefully will live up to his five-star rating as, you know, he was rated as a Washington recruit. I don't know, Jordan Dominic. I mean, there's there's some hope on the outside of the line, isn't there? Uh, there is, I think. The defensive ends seem to be good size. Some of them have some good length, some good height, and some long arms. That's always very helpful as a defensive end, as a, uh, a pass rusher. And they seem to have, have some experience. And I think as a group, they are better than what we had last year, just in terms of their basic athleticism. And perhaps in their experience, it's going to take them a while to adapt, perhaps, to power five ball, but I'm optimistic that those linebackers will be better. I'm not trying to put words in Brad's mouth, but I, if that's what he meant, I think I agree with him that that's going to be um, a relative strength on the defense. Another thing that struck me watching Baylor, excuse me, uh, TCU last year, second half, was the way we had gap assignments between linemen and linebackers. And it's no coincidence that we lost our D.C. a few games into the season. Uh, I think this guy from Alabama probably is a little better school, a little more experienced, and a little bit at least better than the D.C. we had last year. And I'm confident that he can probably with medium-level talent forge a pretty good front seven overall. Okay. Well, Brad, let's talk about a little bit about the interior, the inside linebackers. And, you know, Neil was talking about Charles Kelly, you know, defensive coordinator who came over from Alabama. One of the players he brought with him, nice transition, is DeMoy Kennedy, who played at Alabama, didn't do a whole lot at Alabama, but a lot is expected of him here. Uh, Levanta Bentley comes over from Clemson. He looks to be like he might be the real deal. Another power five player that actually had some some playing time. Uh, Brendan Gant, another one of those guys that was highly recruited at Florida State. He signed, and now he's now he's a buff. Colorado, even when it's had terrible defenses, it had pretty good inside linebackers. Maybe they led the team in tackles simply because there's nobody else. In, the, in front of them that was making tackles yeah, um, or 
the, the defense was designed to funnel, you know, running backs to them. So a little bit more optimistic about the inside linebackers than the interior of the defensive line or still a problem area? No, I think that's a strength area. I think Bentley played in an honest-to-God real defense, one that has done very well for a long time. Um, I think he understands professionalism. I think he will come in and understand his assignments. And him, I think, is going to play. I think um, Kennedy's got the skills to do it. I think he can do that. I thought Marvin Ham at times last year, you know, it was really hard to I thought he played well at times. Um, I think he's a good tackler. I, he has a little trouble in space. But I think I like these linebackers. I think these are a middle of the road to somewhat higher than that group, uh, even in the Pac-12. And given that, I think that we're going to be able to play with fewer players in the defensive backfield as we'll get to. I think the linebackers will be able to stay home. I think they're going to be able to make tackles. I think, again, I tend to think the middle of this defense with Trevor Woods backing him up, it's, it's going to be a lot harder to run up the middle against CU than it was. I think these guys can hit. I think they can do a good job. I would, I'll be interested to see if they can cover because uh, I haven't seen a lot of that yet. But I, I think that um, I like this interior defense a lot better, and I think they have the capacity to be, like I said, middle of the road or a little bit better. Do you share yeah. that optimism, Neil, of the interior linebackers? Pretty good unit? Conditionally, is that the seam between the defensive linemen and the inside linebackers is key. Something to look for early on is whether or not the defensive linemen can sustain the double team and not let one of those uh, blockers peel off and get a linebacker. That would allow the inside linebackers to scrape and move into the hole but if those inside linebackers are taking on guard centers and tackles every play, that's going to be a bad sign for us being able to stop the run. That was a serious problem last year. They, you, not, nobody up front required a double team. And, and that put our linebackers at a disadvantage. The defensive line, the defense overall was not well coached last year. There are schemes that can help work on that. Alabama knows something about such teams. And so we got to hope that our new defensive coordinator has learned some of that. Yeah. Well, it's all reason for optimism, in my view. Yeah. Well, you can't get any worse. I mean, <laughs> that, I mean, she was dead last in the nation in rushing defense, dead last in the nation in scoring defense, second to last in total defense, last by a long way in, in sacks. Only had nine, the second lowest total in the in the country was 14. So, yes, yeah, so we're comparing those apples to oranges. It's a much improved unit by just by having breathing bodies out there. So I'll let you guys tell me how you can define any way you want between the defensive line, if you want to consider the edge rushers defensive line, or if you want to consider them outside linebackers. But top of the Pac-12, bottom of the Pac-12, how would you rate the defensive line and linebackers? Neil, I'll let you go first. How would you rate those two units? I think to start, they're probably in the, in the lower half, probably somewhere around nine or ten. If they can knit themselves together as the season progresses, I could see them improving almost to be right in the middle, six or seven. I'm hoping for more, 
but I think that that's realistic. Okay. Well, Brad, you seem to be a, a little bit more optimistic than Neil, or is that those numbers sound about right to you? Uh, I'm, I'm more optimistic than Neil. You know, I, I think we should hold our breath and see how it looks. Continue to have a great deal of concern about the TCU game. I think we should be very careful about not judging that too much. But I think by a second or third game, this these guys have a good chance to be a solid bunch that, again, I'll, I'll make them a strength. I think they are capable of being five, six, seven in the Pac-12. Okay. And the upgrade from from Brad up, you know, thumbs up from Brad. So defensive backfield, I think we can talk a little bit separately about the cornerbacks. There's only six true cornerbacks on the roster, and two of them, including Cormani McLean, are true freshmen. And, of course, Travis Hunter only played in eight games last year as a true freshman. So a lot of inexperience at cornerback, but considering Omari and Cooper – Kendrick's Breedlove and Yaquez Robinson are coming in as transfers. Potentially, Brad, one of the best cornerbacks units. I mean, or is Cormani McLean not even going to get a lot of starts until the second half of the season? He's a pretty skinny kid, but everyone thinks he's a five-star player. So is it Travis Hunter and Cormani McLean and just uh, – you know, forget about it. We got two shutdown corners and thank you very much. Or is there still some reason for concern in that area? Oh, I think, I, I think unquestionably there's a learning curve. Every highlight you see of McCain, it's just McLean. It's just like, what in the heck have we got here? Just outstanding talent. And then you watch Travis Hunter and he's better. So, you know, you're going to see Travis Hunter either taking half of the field or taking their best player. And let's remember they are being coached by one of the five greatest quarterbacks to ever play in the NFL. And, um, you know, and Dion mentions that about three times per press conference. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think there's just in terms of technique, in terms of understanding the defense, in terms of going what's going on, I, I don't think a freshman is going to be a shutdown corner immediately, but I don't think you're going to be afraid to put him out there. And I think the other guys can play can play the nickel. I mean, we've talked about the fact there are not going to be a lot of games where we're only playing two cornerbacks. Um, that's not how the game works now. It's not how we're going to work. It's not how to best use our talent. But I, I love this cornerback group. Um, I understand, like everywhere else, growing pains. But I think, I think these kids are the kind of kids who are going to come in and just play and in two or three years we're going to be talking about them as you know i was there when i got to see these guys play right well neil um, potential lots of potential there so if you're the tcu offensive coordinator are you uh gonna throw long on these guys and test them to see if they can uh handle power five football or are you uh, giving them the respect that their uh, recruiting rankings seem to say they deserve Oh, if I'm the OC there, I'm going to test them, probably try to pound on them a little bit in the beginning with some running plays, sweeps and, and outside zones, that sort of thing. But overall, the talent in this group, um, we haven't seen anything like this for a long, long time, maybe back to the McCartney era. 
And it hails back to 2016, the crew that McIntyre put together. This, this group on paper, I think is probably one of the most talented units overall that we've had at CU for a long time. I wanna congratulate Brad because long ago he touted Stockmeyer as probably someone who was gonna break into the lineup and the press releases this week have been praising him. So if we assume they're gonna be something like a 3-3-5, starting either three corners or three safeties, I can certainly see Stuttmeyer being in the mix for that, uh, maybe as a slot corner. So, you know, I, I think there's enough talent there, maybe not enough experience yet, but they're going to be good. They're going to be really good. Okay. Well, Neil, I'll stay with you for the, the back end, the safeties. And again, there seems to be reason for, for optimism there. Trevor Woods, perhaps a starter, one of the few holdovers from the 2022 defense. You've got uh, Jacques Robinson beginning up from Alabama. Again, work with the defensive coordinator Kelly at Alabama. Shiloh Sanders, another coach's kid. Cameron Silman Craig, another Jackson State player. And the one I like, you know, Miles Slusher from Arkansas, who actually had a lot of playing experience in Power 5 games. The back end of the defense reason for optimism there or is that just uh wishful thinking on my part i think i think it's one of the strongest units on the team but feel free to tell me i'm wrong well as much as i like to do that Stu, i can't this time i think <laughs> the question is how are they going to configure it because they have safeties that are talented enough to cover and yet big enough and strong enough to come down and behind the, uh, behind the line of scrimmage and support, you know, sort of in a star type role. So it's going to be, real, be a real battle to see who starts. And it's not clear to me which of those guys is going to emerge as full-time starter because they seem pretty close in talent and experience. So I think they're going to be strong. I just can't tell you who is actually going to trot out on the field for the first series on September 2nd, but they're going to be much better. Okay. Brad, uh, what do you think of the the safety position at the University of Colorado heading into the 2023 season? Oh, God, I love these guys. Trevor Woods was probably the best player on the defense the last five games last year, and we'll put his nose in there. And I, I agree with Neil. We won't know who's going to run out there. And on the first game, and I think it will be a different group in the second game, and I think it'll be a different group in the third game. I think these guys are going to be very situational players. I think that we're going to see different players against running teams than we are against more passing teams. Nobody has to like Alabama. You're not required to. Nobody roots for Goliath. But their defensive schemes over the last 10 years have become much more sophisticated. Yeah, it's easier when you're running out five stars. But they understand how to have the right players on the field at the right time. And that's not always the same 11 guys. And so I think particularly at that safety position, you're going to see a rotation of four or five guys playing different positions at different times. And I think there's going to be, I think there's going to be times when safeties are going to be left free to just light people up. And I think yeah. I'm going to enjoy very much watching that. Yeah, I think 
for me, the two words that you haven't had, you know, talking about any unit at the University of Colorado in recent last decade or so, the two words put together, quality, depth, mm-hmm. that not only are they good players, but there's a lot of good players. And, you know, as you guys are pointing out, it's kind of hard to pick and choose which are going to be the starters, but you're not going to lose much if the next guy comes in for the next series, which is uh, a luxury the University of Colorado hasn't had a lot of in the in recent years. So just briefly touch on the specialists. Don't think there's much. There's a walk on, you know, Trent Carrizoza, who had some punts last year as a walk-on, but I think it's Mark Vassett of Louisville who averaged 44.6 yards per attempt last year as a punter. Um, God, he's going to love the altitude. He, you know, I think we're set at punter, so 30 seconds or less, who's going to be the kicker? Is it Alejandro Mata, who comes over with Jackson State with the coach? Or Chase Feely, who also has a history with Coach Prime, who transfers over from Arizona State? Any thoughts on who might be the uh, the starting kicker? For the University of Colorado this year. Well, what I love about choosing the starting kicker is it is potentially the most objective position on the field. Yeah, you got to have a good. It, it's a team. You got to have a good snapper. You got to have a good holder. But the bottom line is, during fall camp, the coaches are going to go. Well, he made it and he didn't, and he made it and he did, and. Yeah, there's no knowing how these guys have played enough that we know that we can expect that pressure is not going to kill them. And who knows what's going to happen in a swirling snowstorm in December or November. God, I would love to play in December. <laughs> in a, in a yes. swirling snowstorm in November. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. who's going to kick the guy who kicks better? Uh, <laughs> and I, my guess is that Feely ends up being that guy. But because sometimes pedigree and uh, power five matters, but I I think that it's not the hardest choice to make in camp. Yeah. Well, Neil at Jackson State only missed one kick and it was blocked. But then again, his longest kick, I believe, was 36 yards. And Feely didn't have much opportunity to get on the field, but you agree with Brad that it's ultimately just going to be uh, who steps up at the last – practice and kicks a 50 yarder so the team doesn't have to run laps and that's your guy or is it going to be uh one's the place kicker and one's the kickoff guy or does it even matter at this point are you worried about the see you having a chance to win a one score game after being beat by an average of 29 points a game last year and uh not having an experienced kicker like cole becker there to step up and make the play i'll tell you I think CU has been spoiled over the last 20 years in having some remarkable kickers, uh, place kickers, that could do both field goals of just about any length and kick it off deep and produce mostly touchbacks. Not sure that we have that this year um, individually or collectively. Watching the field goal kickers at the spring game, I found myself leaning forward on the, on the seat like, go, go. And I think the kid from Jackson State probably doesn't have a very strong leg. He seemed to have trouble getting the ball off the ground and having any carry to it, kind of like my driver. I think they may divide it. You know, they do some situational stuff, like chip shot field goals, give it to the reliable guy. 
longer field goals, maybe beyond 40, they try Feely. And Feely will probably kick off, is my guess. That sounds like a reasonable way to look at it. Uh, well, I'm going to close it out. You know, we've been talking about rating the units top six in the Pac-12, bottom six in the Pac-12. I just thought I'd uh, let you know what Athlon Sports had to say about the University of Colorado because they do unit rankings as well. And at quarterback, they put uh, CU at number six, even though they have no backup that has taken a snap in a power five or any game at all, for that matter. Running backs, now both of you gave a thumbs up, a top six rating to the running back core at the University of Colorado. Athlon put them at 12th. Dead last in the Pac-12 as far as ranking. Wide receivers. Depth of wide receiver, nah, not impressing. Athlon, they put CU at 8th. Offensive line, 10th. Defensive line, ninth. Linebackers, 8th. Defensive backs, ninth. So, the University of Colorado has its work cut out for it. We knew that going in, and the Coach Prime experiment is going to get its first test on Saturday, September 2nd against the, well, in the coaches poll, the number 16 team in the country. As we speak, the AP poll hasn't come out. I don't think it's going to come out for a little while yet. But the number 16 team in the USA Today coaches poll, one of the two major polls. So she's going to have its work cut out for it, but uh, we're going to be talking more about TCU and fall camp in the upcoming weeks, and then we're going to get ready for some actual football. So, gentlemen, thank you for uh, talking about realignment 2023 and the Colorado defense, and we will talk to you guys again real soon. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Stu. Always a pleasure, guys, and uh, I mean, aren't we just more optimistic than we were about six months ago? <laughs> Yes. A word of thanks, both for listening to the podcast and for being a member of the Buff Nation. I hope you're subscribing to the podcast so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We have partnered with Mile High Sports and are pleased to be part of their podcast network. As always, you can find the See What the Game podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other podcast sites. Or, if you're not a fan of downloading podcasts, all of the episodes can be listened to at the See With The Game website. I'll be back soon with Neil and Brad, and we will give you our predictions for the Pac-12, along with our game-by-game -game picks for CU's 2023 campaign. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time when we will again see you at the game.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.